IBN is proud to bring you the following podcast. Welcome to Deconstructed. I'm T.J. O'Hara, the Principal Political Analyst for IVN, the Independent Voter News. Our goal on Deconstructed is to break down important political issues with outstanding guests so you can develop your own more informed opinion. My guest today is the Honorable Mark Jurell. Mr. Jurell currently represents District 4 on the Mecklenburg Board of County Commissioners in North Carolina. In the past, he served as campaign manager for a myriad of elected officials, including judicial, city council, county commission, and congressional candidates. He was an executive committee member of the Black Political Caucus, where he chaired the Get Out the Vote and Legislative Committees, and co-chaired the Economic Development Committee. And he was instrumental in the development of a scorecard to ensure accountability among local elected officials. Mr. Jarrell was also the host of Hip Politics, a self-described free speech zone that tackled pop culture, politics, race, religion, relationships, conspiracies, and a host of other issues that impact us all. I had the distinct pleasure of being a guest on his show numerous times and chopping it up with him, as he likes to call it. So turnabout is fair play. Welcome to Deconstructed, Mark. TJ, thanks so much for having me. And yes, I'm ready to chop it up with you today. Sounds good, Mark. I have to tell you, as regular listeners know, I almost never use the term honorable when I introduce an elected official because it's gratuitous and rarely accurate. You're an exception. You interviewed me numerous times during my presidential campaign in 2012, and I found you to be extremely knowledgeable and fair every time I was a guest on your show. So I have great respect for you as an individual and as an elected official. Well, TJ, thank you for those words. That means a lot. And the word honorable means a lot because as we do this work and you've been doing this work much longer than I have, you know, I think there is a big distinction between politicians and public servants. And I certainly aim to be a public servant. So thank you for saying that. Well, now that I probably embarrassed you enough, let's take it back to the old days and talk about some of the issues that most of our colleagues are afraid to explore. Now, you headed up several committees on the Black Political Caucus when you chaired the Get Out the Vote Committee and the Legislative Committee, and then you co-chaired the Economic Development Committee. What worked and why, and what barriers did you run into when you were trying to get the vote out, for example? Yes, great question. And when you talk about getting out the vote, you're talking about going into communities, TJ, that may not have been as engaged. They feel disconnected in a lot of ways and really don't see the system working for them. And so some of the barriers that you have is really helping people connect just the thought process around why voting is so important and how it impacts them on a daily basis and what impact it has on their lives and the lives of their community. And so that was a huge, huge disconnect. One of the things that was really important as you look at what was happening as it relates to get out the vote is just making sure that people understand that as we move forward, that they're able to really connect specifics around what their engagement means from a community perspective and a policy perspective. You know, one of the things I admire about you is knowing you as I do, just getting people out to vote isn't enough you like to make sure that they're informed. What did you do to help stimulate that interest? Well, that's where you have to engage in a level of accountability, TJ, for those people that are asking for the vote. You mentioned when you went over the bio, you talked about the scorecard. 
the scorecard was really developed to allow people to know how their representatives were voting on key issues that were really important to certain demographics of the community. And so that allows a level of accountability. It allows a level of education and information. And then it allows people in the community to really engage in the process from a different perspective. So they're not necessarily a spectator at that point, but they're really in the game because it allows them to have discussions and to say what they think about these issues and how their elected officials voted. So when you are able to put people in the game, I think it allows them to engage in a different way. And instead of being spectators, they become players. Excellent point. Now, we'll move past the legislative committee because I think that's a little more mundane relative to talking to engagement and so forth with the actual people. But when you co-chair the Economic Development Committee, one of the big barriers to the underrepresented is access to capital. How did you address that issue? Well, one, we had to get a, a consensus that that was really and truly a barrier. So one of the things that we had to do, TJ, was really to dive into the data. So most people know that Charlotte, North Carolina, and Mecklenburg County, where we are, is the number two banking capital in the country. And so to be able to look at the data and pull that together and then allow the data to speak to us and to drive the conversation was really important. So you have you know, minority-owned businesses that certainly need capital, but the access to capital was so limited. And we saw back then, I mean, it was so skewed, TJ, I want to be accurate, but I want to say less than 10% of the loans that were being doled out were going to businesses of color. And the denial rate was at a disproportionate level. So we had to back into the data. Then we had to bring together some key stakeholders to come in and validate the data, but then also say, yes, there is a issue here that we need to tackle. And so let's look at a strategy on how we can tackle this and what we want this economic development equation to look like in our community. Now, let's talk about healthcare a little bit. And I know this is an odd subject to bring up relative to economic development, but it has an impact because with the recent pandemic, you have an impact on minority businesses and women-owned businesses and so forth that have been shut down for a prolonged period of time. Are you seeing an impact because of the pandemic from a business perspective? Well, I want to just tell you that I don't think the correlation with healthcare is, is strange at all. And I think it is a key element and key component as we are talking about this issue of economic development. And so we know that healthcare is certainly a barrier in a lot of businesses, the inability to offer healthcare and the cost in and of itself to small business is just exorbitant. And it's something that I think we have to get a handle on. It's going to take a national strategy around this more so than the local level. There's a lot of things that we can't control, but the healthcare costs can, I mean, it could devastate not only a family, but it certainly could devastate a business as well. And so we don't want to put business owners in a space where they're going to be vulnerable due to healthcare. But then there's another component that I'm really passionate about, and that's mental health too, being able to offer those services and access to folks in our community and our residents here in Mecklenburg County. How has the pandemic impacted your community in that way? 
Well, that's such a great question. And it's really difficult to measure. I mean, all the data is not in at this point, but I can tell you that to a large degree, the community has been devastated. And those folks in our community, TJ, who were already disproportionately adversely impacted by a lot of the social determinants of health, we've seen that disparity widen. We've seen that gap increase. And we are going to have to really double down on some of our efforts as far as investments into these communities to really stand them up and to try to close that gap to pre-pandemic levels at least, and then be a longer-term strategy to close the gap even further as we, you know, go out from a yearly calendar perspective as well. But, you know, our community has been hit pretty hard. And then when you think about the emotional toll the pandemic has played on our parents, our school-age children, our senior citizens, and the inability to access information and We've seen a lot of anxiety because of a digital divide. So there are a lot of gaps that the pandemic has really highlighted, and we know that we've got to address them. Well, Mark, we're going to take a quick break and talk more about the interests of the underrepresented when we come back. Looking for an insider's perspective? Join IVN's principal political analyst, Dr. T.J. O'Hara, as he deconstructs America's most pressing issues with notable guests from across the political spectrum. Subscribe to Deconstructed for fresh perspectives and no partisan spin. Welcome back. My guest today is Mark Jurell, a member of the Mecklenburg Board of County Commissioners in North Carolina. Mark, we were talking about health care and talking about the mental health aspect of it, as well as the impact on businesses. It has additional impact as well. How has it impacted housing in your district? Well, interestingly enough, I'll tell you, we recently have noticed an increase in the opportunity to support our homeless population. Homelessness has been an issue in Mecklenburg County as it has been across the country, TJ. And so we have found that people have been creating these communities and coalescing around resources. We do have a housing shortage. We have an affordable housing shortage here in Mecklenburg County. And and the way we define that is when people have to devote more than 30% of their income to housing. And so we know that we have people that are housing insecure from an economic standpoint, but then we also have a significant homeless population that we're dealing with as well. I will say that there were some measures put in place early on that I think were effective. And this was a moratorium around evictions that really helped us to stop the evictions and so that we did not add on to the homeless population. But one of the things that we found was that there was a gap as it relates to a lot of the landlords who were not getting any income and relied on some of that rental assistance as income. And then, like I was saying before, the homeless population trying to make sure that we were able to provide up resources for them in a way that addressed public health and public safety. And so as we were trying to navigate this throughout this pandemic, TJ, it's been a real challenge, but housing is something that our community is going to have to address. We've been trying to address this. And the other thing that we found out about this is that we can't operate in silos. So from a county perspective, the city perspective, state, we are going to have to come up with a broader strategy to help us through this. 
How do you go about balancing the equities? You brought up the fact that there are the people who lease the properties and they need income streams to cover the mortgages and so forth that they bear versus the affordable housing where you had the dispensation given for monthly rents and so forth. How do you balance those equities as a legislator? Well, I think it's important to know that all these issues are interconnected and we're all tied into them together. I think I have to look at it from a comprehensive perspective and know that, you know, my constituents are a vast array of folks with different concerns, interests, opportunities, and and they all bring a level of productivity to our community and they all add value to our community. And so how do you implement policies that are fair? I think, one, you always lead with information and the data, and we have to educate ourselves and to make sure that as we solve the one problem, we're not creating others. And it's a balancing act. And one thing in this role, you you can't please everyone and you're not going to make everyone happy. But what you can do is you can always be honest coming from your perspective. You can listen and you can work with folks to try to solve whatever issues are out there in in the best way that's going to be in the best interest of the entire community it is in fact a delicate balance and you know another one that comes to mind in these times are social services yes you have the need to provide assistance but how do you do it and preserve dignity and respect and where do you balance it relative to creating opportunities yeah I think that's a great point. And one of the things I know that as the county, you know, we are the safety net for a lot of folks. And interestingly enough, I know sometimes when we talk about services that are public services and social services and things of that nature, sometimes there's a stigma with those folks. But I'll tell you, you know, one of the things that I've realized is that the overwhelming majority of people have no interest in getting a handout. And this goes across the board. It doesn't matter what racial demographic, gender, any indicator that's out there, TJ. The vast majority of people don't want a handout. They want a hand up. And so as I think about this and this idea relative to social services and our role as a county, one of the things that I think about often is how do we get people to a livable wage and beyond? How do we move them into the space and provide those opportunities that will get them where they want to be. What type of investment should we be making? Do we change the paradigm? You know, should we be investing in social services or should we be investing in opportunities for people or both? And so I have decided for me, I have been advocating for investments in opportunity while we provide social services. And I want that single parent that's out there that is working 40, 50 hours a week for $13 an hour. I want us to be able to invest in a training opportunity for that individual so that they can finish a training program and come out making $22 an hour so that they can live in a place like Mecklenburg County and live fairly comfortably and do all the things that would allow them to have a high quality of life and opportunity for their children. So those are the things that I kind of balance out, keeps me up at night. And, you know, that's kind of the way that I've chosen to view this lens. It's a difficult balance because you never want assistance, at least in my opinion, to become a disincentive to people. You want to provide them with that opportunity, level the playing field, if you will. 
And then at what point does government involvement become government intrusion? I live in California. So we've had a disproportionate impact on small business. Small business has been shut down. The impact is predominantly on women-owned and minority-owned businesses because they're the overwhelming preponderance of small businesses. Similarly, you have education. Our schools have been shut down, our public schools. The private schools are open. So you have that economic gap being exacerbated and you have a generation of those who need assistance who are not getting access to education. What are you doing in Mecklenburg County and both of those areas that you think might translate well for a state like California? Well, I'll tell you this. First off, TJ, we're experiencing the same challenges. So schools are just opening back up. But I think we did, not only in Mecklenburg County, but I think Governor Cooper did a really good job of managing expectations, leading with the data. And, you know, I don't see any scenario, unfortunately, TJ, where someone wasn't going to be hurt. We know that businesses and people of color were certainly disproportionately impacted. I think 40%, I think the the latest data I saw is that 40% of those businesses are lost and are not coming back which is really disheartening because anybody who's listening who's an entrepreneur knows that it's very difficult for folks that have an entrepreneurial spirit who have built the business from the ground up to go out and ask them to work a quote-unquote nine-to-five job strapped to a desk potentially. That it's just it's antithetical to the mindset of an entrepreneur. And so one of the things that we certainly had to do was lead with the data. But again, we knew that Our children were being impacted from a social emotional standpoint, being home. A lot of parents, particularly parents of color and folks that were on the lower end of the socioeconomic ladder, were not able to provide the level of support that their children needed for this new way of learning via Zoom classes and and on this, the digital platform more so. So that was devastating in and of itself. And the way our numbers were going here in North Carolina and in Mecklenburg County, we were left with very few options on opening up and what that would look like. And so it, it was, it's just a difficult needle to thread. And I know I looked and saw what you guys were going through in California and how you were being devastated and what was happening all across the country. I think there could be arguments made for both sides and they were tough decisions. And again, I think that wherever you are, if you're leading with the data, I think that I would fall on that side every time. Excellent point. Well, Mark, we're going to take a quick break and talk more about our nation's issues when we come back. The National Association of Nonpartisan Reformers is the only association of nonpartisan election reform leaders, organizations, and industry professionals dedicated to increasing electoral competition and voter choice. Learn more at nonpartisanreformers.org. Welcome back. My guest today is Mark Jurell, District 4's Commissioner on the Mecklenburg County Board in North Carolina. Mark, you and I have had a lot of political discussions over the years, some public, some private. And one of the things I've always been extremely impressed with is your approach. So when you see what is otherwise perceived as a political issue, you actually look at it as a social issue that can be solved. Walk us through how you look at some of the more important issues that are confronting our nation today? Yeah, another great question, TJ. And 
You're right. I do look at these issues through a social lens and, you know, at times when necessary, a lens of social justice and equity. And so one of the challenges that I realized very early on, you and I are both data-driven individuals. But one of the things that can be a blind spot for people like us sometimes is that we have to realize that there are actual people behind the numbers that we're looking at. And so how do our policies play out in the lives of people? And so as I look at any issue, I do look at it through a lens of how our decisions are impacting people. What has happened historically that we have put in place that have been impediments? A lot of times, TJ, we've invested money as a community, as a state, as a country into these issues that it seems like we can never solve. So one thing that it's telling me is that certain things, it's not money. I think a lot of times we have to look at the systems that are in place And how do we really reconstruct some of these systems that continue to produce these adverse outcomes? And one of the things that I think is important is to have conversations, lead with data, have conversations, and allow people a safe space to really express their ideas and to get an understanding of some of their thought processes. And once we have that, I think giving people a lot of bandwidth and a lot of grace and space to speak to their thoughts and how they're interpreting the information that they have allows us to move to a space where we can actually implement solutions. But you can only do that by having substantive discussions. And one of the things that we can't do, and you and I have discussed this, is that we can't use the data to reinforce negative stereotypes. Like you can't use the data just to say poor children can't learn, black children can't learn. We have to take a comprehensive approach to really understand the whys behind why are we seeing the the outcomes that we're seeing and then bring everyone to the table to offer those solutions. And when I say everyone, I'm talking about people of goodwill, people that understand that we all come with these biases and certain inclinations but we're willing to face those, put them aside, and work together to solve these issues. How do you approach unconscious bias? You bring up stereotypes, and I think that certainly is one of the major barriers that we face as a nation. How do you surface the unconscious biases that people may have? Being an elected official, I have the luxury of having a lot of resources and individuals that are (laughs) much smarter than I am as it relates to helping us understand and tap into these unconscious bias or implicit biases, as it's known in a lot of circles. And so being able to have those folks on deck to help us tee up these conversations and keep us on guard of what to look for. But also, I think it's important that you've got to give people, TJ, a space and the bandwidth to misstep. I think it's very important to understand that people come from different life experiences. And sometimes it is up to me to try to educate folks what I hear, what Mark may hear as an African-American male may not be what you're trying to say. But if I can at least tell you, hey, this is the way I hear this, allow you to process that and make some decisions. One, if you do the decision tree, one decision may say, listen, that's just Mark. He doesn't represent all the African-American community. Okay, that's a possibility. But then again, another possibility could be that 
hey, it may be a large portion of this community may hear it similarly to Mark. And then three, it allows you to say, hey, that's not the way I want this conversation to go or my thoughts to be interpreted. So let me find a different way to say what I'm saying in a way that I can be heard in the way that we can drive us more towards solutions. So if we keep our focus on solutions and respect for everyone and what they bring and where they've come from and their experiences, I think it really gives us a better foundational element and approach as we move forward. And there's an air of civility to it, isn't there? There is. There's certainly an air of civility, but that's not to say, though, TJ, that we can't have passionate in hard discussions. I mean, I think you can only find really, really thoughtful, aggressive solutions when there is that hard dialogue. I don't think everybody should approach these conversations from an aspect of, you know, we have to have a kumbaya moment or huggy, huggy and kissy, kissy time. I mean, the bottom line is there are some major issues that we're dealing with and certain things that we have avoided as a country because we don't want to have the tough conversation. And I think it should be passionate. I think it should be honest. I think it should be open. But I think you can be respectful and passionate at the same time. I think that there is a way to balance that, that we just have not done. And I think as a community here in Mecklenburg County, as a state and as a country, I'm not sure what our commitment is to doing the heavy lifting of trying to address, and particularly, you know, the elephant in the room with us as Americans, TJ, as you know, it's pretty much race. It's pretty much race and the impact that race has had on our society. And some people would just rather certain individuals forget and try to move forward. And they give other groups the bandwidth to say, never forget. And I'm probably closer to the crowd that says, never forget, because we want to be a continuously learning people and we want to learn from our past and where we have to make things right. We should make things right. And I just think that that's the type of country we should have. Great points. Well, Mark, in the limited amount of time we have left, where could our listeners go to learn more about you, your district and your political positions and solutions? Yeah. So I'll tell you what, I've got a heavy social media presence. So a couple different ways. My moniker here in Mecklenburg County is Mark for the people. It's Mark, M-A-R-K, the number four, the people spelled out. You can follow me on Instagram. You can follow me on Twitter, Facebook as well. Also, we'll always have the Hippolytics brand. It's H-I-P-O-L-I-T-I-X. That's H-I-P-O-L-I-T-I-X. So definitely go to uh, follow me on Twitter at HipPolitics. Would love to get your feedback, your thoughts. The website is markforthepeople.com. Uh, you can learn about what's happening here in Mecklenburg County. And yeah, engage. Uh, we're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. So please engage. I've really enjoyed today, TJ. Thank you so much for opening up the platform to me. Well, Mark Jarrell, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Your knowledge and thoughtfulness are obvious and your passion for the people is refreshing. I hope we get to see you in higher positions at the state and federal levels in the coming years because you're exactly the type of leader I think this country needs. And if I can help you in any way, just let me know. In the meantime, keep building bridges and breaking down barriers, my friend. And thank you again for joining me on Deconstructed. 
Thanks so much, DJ. And I'll take you up on that offer, but I definitely appreciate being here. I want to say thank you to your audience and let's continue to challenge each other. Hold me accountable, push me, and let's work together for solutions. Thank you so much. This podcast is brought to you by IVN.us, an open news platform for independent-minded authors and readers. If you like what you hear, make sure to subscribe to IVN.us where you listen to podcasts on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, or iHeartRadio.